Morning, everyone. So I hope that you non-parents enjoyed your extra hour of sleep this morning. I, if you reset your kids, well, you can't, well, you know, you can't reset your kids. This isn't a clockwork orange, you know, you can't reset your kids. Um, so your kids woke up this morning at what time? Five, four, three. <laughs> but anyway, everyone else, hope you had a good time. We usually, uh, I usually, the speaker would pray for the service, pray for himself at this point. I'm going to ask that all of you pray for me uh, this morning quietly, and, and, I'll, and, um, and then we'll resume with the message. As a way of just involving the body, uh, the preached word is an interesting experience because uh, Paul said to Timothy, when you preach, preach as someone speaking the very words of God. When Paul heard about other teachers, and they were maybe saying some things that were not correct, he said, I don't care about their words. Tell me about the power in the words. God's uh, concern is that his word be delivered with power. I do preparation. I pray. I read the scripture. I think about it. I reflect on it. I, I practically dream about it at night. I wake up with illustrations in my head. I have all kinds of things that, that, ha- that, that happen in the preparation part, and it's all covered in prayer. But this is God's word to us as a church. And it's about power, not about what I've prepared necessarily. Who here can recite a sermon verbatim that was really powerful to them in the past? No one can. But you can remember words and phrases in sermons that spoke to your heart and transformed your life. That's because it's God's word, God's powerful word. So I would, I would ask you, I need you, the body of Christ, to pray for me, because this is God's word even though I've done some of the preparation. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, the prayers of the saints are like a sweet-smelling incense to you. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who lift me up and lift up this church. Thank you that the body of Christ has been re-embodied this morning. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea and question this morning is, how are we to live in light of the fact that the sovereign, meaning when you get right down to it, the all-controlling God, okay, that's what sovereign kinds of means. So when you hear sovereign, think all-controlling. All-powerful God, as we understand him through Jesus Christ, is overall, in all, and all in all. How are we to live in light of the fact that the all-controlling, all-powerful God is overall, in all, and all in all. Surely, God's imminent presence should make all the difference in our life. That word imminent means close at hand. It's a word we use to describe God. His close at hand presence as the all-powerful sovereign should make a difference in our lives. It really should. Let me frame the idea in a different way. So when you spot a police officer hiding in an underpass on the north way, do you speed up? Of course not. When you realize there is a police presence, you think and you act differently. You might drive slower. Probably all of you do because you're all here in church and not in jail. What about in marriage? Let's take this uh, to the next level. Will you have a successful outcome in your marriage if you continue to live, make decisions, and, uh, and just generally do life the same way you did before you were married? 
The answer is, no, you will have no success in marriage if you live this way. In marriage, we have to completely adjust our lives, everything about us. We have to revolutionize our lives. The two, is, the two have become one flesh. You can no longer live as you lived before. This is something we usually learn in the first three, mar- three years of our marriage uh, that we didn't quite understand when we signed up for the thing. But uh, the presence of a husband or a wife makes all of the difference, wouldn't you agree, in a successful marriage? God is sovereign in our lives, all-powerful, all-controlling. God is also personal in our lives. He is close at hand. His presence pushes down on our lives. His imminent presence pushes down in our lives like a weight. We don't always feel it. Sometimes we catch a glimpse of it when something traumatic happens in our life and we realize, wow, there's God right there. Another way the Bible talks about it in Exodus 33, the glory of God. The word word kavod in Hebrew means the weight, the weighty presence of God. It presses down on us. So how are we to live in light of this fact? How are we to make, uh, to relate to others in the body of Christ? How are we to plan for the future in light of the fact of the sovereign God pressing down in our lives? This is the question our scripture today addresses. So if you'll uh, join with me, we're going to be reading from James 4, starting in verse 11. We're going to cover the first two verses. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James's word to us in the church today and to his church when he wrote this was, do not slander. It means do not speak ill of, do not speak against, and do not judge one another in the body of Christ. That's James's word. Do not speak ill of, do not speak against, do not judge other people in the body of Christ because God is the only lawgiver and judge. And God is doing a more than adequate job of judging and standing behind the law than any of us ever could. So James is saying, do not do these things. This command appears in many other places in the scriptures, notably in Matthew 7. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Pretty sobering words from Christ. James is speaking here broadly about not bringing harsh criticism and condemnation on other people in the church. And the reason he says we shouldn't do this is because just as we are playing the character like an actor, as we are are acting as a judge, there is a real judge. There is a real judge. And the actual judge is the only one with the authority to actually pass judgment. None of us has the authority to pass judgments. God's, re- God's presence as the lawgiver, 
presiding over the law that he himself established, makes all of the difference in how we relate to one another in the body. God is the lawgiver who wrote the law, and he's the only judge. He's the only one who has the authority to condemn someone or to save someone. In John 3.17, it talks about this idea that uh, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus is God's second self. Jesus is God. Jesus is the lawgiver. And Jesus' orientation was not to judge, but to save, though he's the only one that has the authority to judge. Though all of this is fact about God, James is speaking here to people in church taking it upon themselves to judge as though the lawgiver was not already doing this himself. Or perhaps to say, maybe he's doing an inadequate job, and maybe he needs our help. Judging others breaks the law, according to James, because in harshly critiquing people, according to our standards, we break the very law that we say we are enforcing by ceasing to love one another. And if you'll recall, in Matthew 22, Jesus says... Loving God and loving others is the one law we must keep if we are to uphold his entire law. You recall that? Now, some will say, aren't there scriptures about how it's okay to judge in the church in certain uh, circumstances? And the answer is, yes. Yes, there are. So if you had that question in your mind, there absolutely are, and we're going to look at them. But what the Bible allows for in judging other people in the church is nothing like what most of us give ourselves permission to do Uh, when we judge one another in the church. We give ourselves far too much license. The call of God is to take him into account as the ultimate judge when we do this judgment in the church and in fear and trembling. Okay? Look at it this way. God's standard uh, is the law. This is God's standard of goodness. And God's law is for our benefit, to show us what his standard is. So God's law shows us what God's standard is. And the law is all good. The standard is all good. It contains everything in it for human thriving and holistic peace, for shalom is the Hebrew word. It's all good, just like God himself. An example of this would be the teaching on the Sabbath from Mark 2.27. Jesus was trying to explain the Sabbath to people. And he said, you know, there's this command in the Old Testament. Six days you are to labor and do all your work, but rest on the seventh day, because God himself rested on the seventh day in creation. Therefore, you in the church need to rest also one day a week. That's a law. And Jesus explained this law, saying, don't be nitpicky with it. Here's the idea behind it. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for human thriving, for shalom and holistic peace. God knows, as the creator, that having this day of rest is going to make us whole. It's a good thing for us. The law is all good. The standard of God is all good. And that's just one example. God is the only one who evaluates where people are plotted underneath uh, the spectrum of his standard. Okay, So we're all plotted underneath the standard. We all fall below it. And we all miss the mark of the law. All of us do. There's no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, have fallen short of God's standard. Therefore, if anyone down here judges the way someone else is doing in regard to God's standard without taking into account that they themselves are held to that same standard, they sin. Does that make sense? Anyone who passes a judgment without taking into account that God is the only actual judge reveals a heart attitude that doesn't believe that God is presiding over his law and actually believes that they themselves are residing over the law. We need to take into account the sovereign, all-powerful, imminent, close-at-hand God when we are tempted to judge other people. And we need to allow that to shape how we go about that kind of thing. Each of us 
are made in the image of God. Men and women are made in the image of God. And God has standards, right? And all of us also have standards. Like God, we have created standards. And they're all different from one another. This has nothing to do with God's law necessarily. This is just a human thing. We consider these things to be good, in other words, these standards. But though this is the case, we are not allowed to judge other people in the church by our standards. But only as deputized surrogates, deputized surrogates of our sovereign God who is the true judge. We can only judge by God's revealed standard found in the Bible when we judge. And we have no right to cast other judgments based on our personal standards. Okay? God's law is the law. God is the judge. We don't have a right to cast judgments on other people based on our standards. When we do this, we make ourselves into God. And we demand that other people follow our standard instead of acknowledging that God is the lawgiver and instead looking at people as falling underneath his standard. In general, Christians are far too harsh to one another in their thoughts and judgments of each other. And this harshness reveals a heart attitude that they don't take into account that they themselves are people under the standard of God. And God is the only judge. Further, we have to really discuss um, the standard and, and standard breaking in community um, in light of the fact that the lawgiver, our God, is bent on mercy. He is orient, oriented towards mercy always. Uh, if you don't believe this, just look at the Old Testament. People don't usually think that, but look at the Old Testament at the prophets. Look at how many opportunities God gave for people to turn before they finally fell under judgment. He gave people so much opportunity. And, and, and through Christ, obviously, we see a manifestation. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. God has been towards mercy. And he's been merciful to each of us in forgiving our sins and forgiving the way that we have missed the mark of the standards of God, the law of God. And so, because of his orientation towards mercy, he sent Jesus, who fulfilled God's standard perfectly, and, and, he, and what God has done is said, anyone who looks to the righteousness, the perfect fulfillment of my standard in Jesus Christ and has faith in him, his shed blood covers that person in this, in this amazing way, and that person has the righteousness of Jesus. God no longer looks at us as lawbreakers, but looks at us as people who have kept the law perfectly through our faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. So we need to deal with great mercy with one another the same mercy we ourselves have received from God. <laughs> and we continue to receive that mercy, by the way. It's, it's a common, common misnomer that you, you stopped receiving mercy at salvation. You're living on it every moment of your life. If the lawgiver has been so merciful to us, then how can we speak ill of, speak against, and judge one another in the body? How can we be so harsh with one another in relation to our opinions, our pet peeves, our personal desires and our thoughts, our own personal standards. How can we tear people down in the body? Appropriate human judgment in the Bible, we're getting to this now, uh, look a lot more like applying God's standard in reference to certain things with fear and trembling, okay? This is not something you're excited to do, to jump on, jump on other people, right? With acknowledgement that we ourselves possess no authority to pronounce judgments on other people. That we... Uh, are underneath the judge, and we are underneath the same standard as everyone else in regard to God. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13, What business is it of mine to judge those 
outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Here's an example of someone in the Corinthian church living in a willful sin that God has clearly taught is a sin, according to his standard, okay? And this guy is refusing to repent. He's saying, I don't have to change. I refuse to repent. This guy has no desire to turn from his sin. And Paul is encouraging these believers to basically put into force the judgment that God has already made clear in this situation as the lawgiver. And these people are reluctant to do this, which I think is actually, Paul is, Paul is exhorting them, he's encouraging them to do something that's hard to do. I think it's actually a better quality that they're reluctant to do it in some ways, because they're showing, in this particular situation, probably they're just not being attentive, <laughs> as they should be. But in general, they're doing it with fear and trembling. And Paul says, look, you guys are, you know, ignoring this too long. You need to do something now. God has made the judgment. Expel the immoral brother from among you. So here's an example of Christians underneath God's authority, according to God's standards, putting into effect a, a, a consequence in community for someone who is refusing to repent from breaking God's standard and saying, I don't need to repent. There's nothing wrong with the way I'm living. So this is a totally different situation than judging and being harsh and all those different kinds of things. A second example, Christians are elsewhere encouraged to judge between teachers that instruct the church. Okay, so we are encouraged to judge teachers. Uh, This would, by the way, apply to myself and anyone else who teaches here. You should check to see if what I'm saying is true according to the standard of God found in the the scriptures. In 1 John 4, 1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test or judge the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So again, in this instance, a judgment of teachers and prophets is happening in relation to what God has already taught. Okay? The judgment is happening based on God's standard, not based on the opinions of the people in the church who maybe didn't like topical sermons or the illustrations that were employed. This is about God's word, right? This is, this is what these people are being commanded to do. Judge whether this is heretical based on the gospel message that you was clearly proclaimed and taught to you. This is why the Bereans in Acts 17, you remember these people? They were commended by, in, in, uh, in Acts uh, by Luke because they searched what? The scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They weren't commended because they nitpicked Paul's illustrating or nitpicked his personality or nitpicked uh, or anything. It was because they searched the scriptures. And they had this orientation, of, of this, this humble orientation that they were persuadable. I'm persuadable uh, to what Paul is saying, but I just need to check the scriptures to see if it lives up to God's standard. And they judged that it did after much careful research, and they were commended for that. Ultimately, there really is no place for us taking our own standards, our personal opinions, our personal desires, or our personal pet peeves, that's lots of P words, no matter how well-reasoned we may think they are, and then harshly critiquing a brother or sister in Christ according to these things. The only criteria for judging uh, that we possess are the judgments that God has already made, and we must not go beyond those for fear of finding ourselves under the same critique and judgment that we ourselves are doling out to other people. Now, in this conversation, this does not rule out exploratory conversations in community between believers on non-essential matters or a difference of opinions just harsh and conclusive judgments. Judgments 
All of this has to be taken into account. There is one lawgiver and one judge. There is a God. He's out there. He presses down on us. We need to act, live and act in light of God's all-powerful, all-controlling, close-at-hand presence in our lives when we interact with other people and when we, make, when we think about making these judgments. God is the judge, right? This makes sense. Let's read on. James 4, uh, 13. We'll do 13 to 17. Or 16, rather. Now listen to you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So very simply put here, James is saying that presuming on anything in the future is foolish because none of us knows anything about the future. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, we all kind of act like we know something about the future, but none of us, really, when you think about it, knows anything about the future. Only the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God knows about the future. And God controls the future. Planning for the future without taking God into account makes no sense because God has the future in his hands and knows things that we do not know. We can all agree on this. God knows things that we do not know. should be a mantra of our, uh, uh, for our daily lives. So here, people are bragging and boasting about what they'll do at a later time, and James is saying, this is not something you should be doing with your tongue. Remember when Ed talked about bridling the tongue? This is not something you should be doing. You shouldn't be boasting and bragging about the future. You are like a mist. The sun comes up, and it's gone. It's vaporized. Uh, so what are you doing bragging about the future? Instead... Uh, with your tongue, you ought to say, God is in control. If the Lord wills it, we will do this. Okay? It's a, it's a simple acknowledgement. And, th- and maybe this has become routine. Uh, you've heard people say this. Oh, if the Lord wills it, if it's the Lord's will. It's actually a great thing when you really take it to heart. It really is. So when you're, when you're uh, tempted to use your tongue for judgment, for harsh judgment, uh, when you are going to use your tongue to talk about the things you're going to do in the future, no matter how noble they will be, because there's nothing wrong with making money um, or any of those things, James is saying, instead, use your tongue to uh, acknowledge Jesus' power and control, to acknowledge God as the lawgiver, to see the, to see the, see the big picture of where you fall. Acknowledge God in your prayers when you pray about the future. Because every time we make a plan, we need to be in prayer. We need to be in deep prayer about any plan, no matter how kosher it might seem. You might have a plan to start a Bible study. That's got to be God's will. <laughs> You've got to pray about it. You've got to pray about everything. Acknowledge him in prayer and in word when you speak about the future. It's a great little trick for us humans to have this tactile thing we do. If the Lord wills it, we will, we will get this house. You know, if the Lord wills it, we will, we will, we will start a cell group. You know, if the Lord wills it. And then pray into that. Uh, that's what you should use your tongue for. Um, we need to be acknowledging that God's presence and power are real in our lives. That's what this passage is really about. We need to acknowledge that God's presence and power are real in our lives and not as if we are the final word on everything. Because we're not. Many times we act like we're the cake and we're the frosting. And God is the, a couple sprinkles christening the top of our cake. 
doesn't add anything to the substance of our lives, we might as well be unbelievers. But we need to take God into account. The lawgiver behind the law, the one who holds the future in his hands, and the personal God who is close at hand, closer than your next breath, who's bent on mercy and relationship with us. Amazing thought. As a final uh, word here, it says in verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And this is a great general rule of Christian life. But specifically here, James is saying, now that you know better than to relate to others as if you were the judge or plan without taking God's control and his sovereignty into account, you have got to change. You know, you have to put this into practice. This is something James hits on over and over again. Put these principles into practice. It would be really easy to be nitpicky with applying scriptures, of course, and even this sermon, but all James is asking is that we not place ourselves, particularly our human judgments and our human plans, above God, but understand our proper place in relation to God and in, and in relation to other people. Other people, us, God. Okay? That's what it's all about. Because God is the weightiest thing in our lives. His presence matters a great deal, both now and perhaps even more in the future when his kingdom is consummated. And we see, we see things as they truly are, and he is revealed uh, in this world. Jesus' presence in our life must be the thing that makes all of the difference. I get an amen?